if you weren't here, uh, Pastor Liz mentioned in the sermon about our hosting of the Interfaith uh, Thanksgiving service. And if you were not here, I really encourage you to go watch that service on our YouTube channel online. And if you can't watch the whole thing, go forward to the point where uh, a local rabbi and the local imam stand in our Christian pulpit and share a prayer of peace. It was truly remarkable and an honor to be able to, to host uh, that event. Besides last Tuesday's interfaith Thanksgiving service, one of my top memories since our coming to Santa Barbara a few months ago uh, was the Saturday afternoon, about two or three months ago, that I was driving to the church to run through my sermon. I was driving up Garden Avenue, and the light on the corner of Anapamu uh, turned red. And there was one car uh, right ahead of me at the stoplight. But as I looked to my right, uh, I saw a, a, a mother and a father and their college-age daughter in front of our doors. And their faces were full of delight as they were taking pictures of the doors. And so evidently the message, God's doors are open to all, was a, a, a welcome word of hospitality and grace. Well, when the light turned green, I followed the car behind me and was surprised. It, it turned into the parking lot our parking lot just ahead of me, and proceeded quite deliberately, slowly, more slowly than I wanted, uh, to around our buildings. And then it pulled into a parking spot just by our office doors. And, and I, you know, passed by them, and as I did, I, I saw on the lawn that there was a, a young family with a small child, and they were having a picnic on our lawn just under the the redwood tree. And again, I thought that, that this campus is such a, a place of hospitality and grace. And, and then I, I got out of the car and I, I looked and there were two older couples getting out of the car that I had trailed into the parking lot. And, um, and it turned out that, that both of those couples had been married in this church more than 50 years ago. Uh, they, uh, the two men were actually brothers, and they had grown up in this church. And, they, uh, and they, uh, one of the couples, I think, now lives in North Carolina, and the other couple maybe nearby in Carpentry. I can't quite remember, but they, they asked if they could come in and, and see the sanctuary, and of course... You know, that's no problem. I walked them in to see the sanctuary. And as they did, they, they just shared their fond memories. And, and as we talked together, they brought up a photo that had been taken when they were in Sunday school. And uh, I figured, you know, that this photo was in our archives room. And so, you know, earlier this week, I just ran upstairs to the archives room to, to grab that photo to use as a sermon illustration. But when I was up there, I, I found a couple other things because you never know what you're going to find when you're poking around the nooks and, and crannies of hallowed religious spaces. 
And, and though I do not know them, I found this portrait of somebody who was so important to many of you on your own faith journeys, the Reverend Lloyd Satchin. And then I, uh, I found this other, uh, there were several there, but I, I just grabbed two others. I found this other portrait. I'll show you guys first, since I've been going the other direction. This is uh, the Reverend George Walters. And sometime after he served as pastor here at Santa Barbara First, he became the San Diego District Superintendent, which included the Imperial Valley, where my home church is. And Reverend Walters was the superintendent who presided over the charge conference when my home church voted to affirm me as a candidate for ministry. And then I, I found this, this portrait as well. This portrait is of the Reverend Don Loker. Uh, and uh, Don Loker, uh, sometime after he was a minister, uh, maybe actually before, became quite a skilled wood carver. And I know this because a cross that he carved hangs just above the communion table in a church I previously served just 90 minutes up the road in Atascadero. And that church had not been formed so long ago. I think they just maybe celebrated their 40th anniversary. But uh, the, the member of the church that commissioned that cross, uh, Layman Colvin, uh, gave me a replica of that cross in appreciation of, of my ministry. And this was a prototype that, that Don had whittled, had carved uh, to show what the cross would look like. And I don't know if you can see it so well or not, but at each point, the cross bends inward, symbolizing an embrace. You know, symbolic of that embrace of God when Jesus was on the cross. And then, of course, a symbol of the way that God embraces us. And so, as I, I just said, you never know what you'll find when you're poking around the nooks and crannies of sacred religious spaces. Indeed, like the portraits of Reverend Sachin and Reverend Walters and Reverend Loker, you may just find things that reconnect you to your own story of faith your own journey of faith. Thanks be to God. This is not unlike the story uh, that we heard this morning from 2 Kings, uh, which tells us how King Josiah's uh, secretary, Shaphan, Shaphan, is given a scroll of the Torah by the high priest Hilkiah. And as the narrative reports, Josiah had sent Shaphan to the temple to pay the skilled workers who are uh, renovating and repairing the temple. Not unlike uh, many churches and parsonages these days, uh, the Jerusalem temple had some deferred maintenance, largely due to the neglect of previous kings who had turned to the worship of foreign deities, 
So the temple wasn't so important for them. Now, the text that we read does not tell us where or how uh, this scroll of Torah uh, was found during those renovations, but it is not difficult for us to imagine that one of those skilled workers, oh, well, let me say this first. One intriguing possibility is that it was hidden away in the temple uh, during the reign of a particularly evil king. Uh, the Bible describes King Manasseh as one of the, the most evil of kings uh, over Israel. And so, and so um, we don't know how it got to the high priest, but it's not hard to, to imagine that it was hidden away. And then one of the skilled workers, you know, as they're working along, finds it and then passed it along uh, to the high priest, Hilkiah. And, and what strikes me and maybe struck you as we were listening to the story is how Hilkiah, who is, after all, the high priest, does not seem to recognize the importance of the book. He simply says to Shaphan, I found this book of the law in the house of the Lord. And then uh, similarly, when Shaphan goes to King Josiah, he gives a really detailed account of paying the workers uh, who are repairing the temple. And then he says, almost as an afterthought, oh, by the way, <laughs> your high priest, Hilkiah, gave me a book. And then Shaphan reads it for the king. Now, our reading this morning excludes the immediate reaction of Josiah. So I'll read for you uh, verses 11 through 13 that, that describe what happens right after Shaphan read the book. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The king commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahakam son of Shaphan, Achbor son of Mechaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and the king's servant Azaiah, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that has been kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to to all that is written concerning us. And so in contrast to the high priest Hilkiah, the importance of this scroll is not lost on Josiah. And so after consulting a prophetess, I'd like to talk about that more, but there's not time, a prophetess named Holda. Chapter 23 reveals how uh, Josiah then arranges for all of the people of Judah, young and old, small and great, to come to the temple and hear the book read aloud. And Josiah then follows up by making a public covenant to follow the commandments and the statutes and the decrees that are, that are uh, included in the scroll. For as, as uh, chapter 23, verse 3 says, he says, to perform the words of this covenant 
written in the book. Not, not to just honor them, not to just believe them, but to perform them. Now, uh, it is very unlikely uh, that the scroll of Torah that's referred to in this reading is all of the first five books of the Old Testament that, that we know of as Torah. Uh, the scholars mainly agree that this is really an early version of one book of the Torah, Deuteronomy, because what we read as we go on in 2 Kings is that all of the reforms that Josiah institutes come from Deuteronomy. There is so much to this story that we really can't delve into, but I really think the key message or the key uh, proclamation of the story is is how King Josiah and the people of Israel are reclaiming their story. Uh, The story that they were supposed to be living by and according to all along. Doesn't it seem that that something similar is desperately needed in modern American Christianity? Especially for those of us who are heirs of the mainline Protestant tradition. It seems to me that when fundamentalism and conservative evangelicalism, uh, when they began to proof text, certain passages of the Bible to stake out their positions, those of us who came from more reflective and and maybe scholarly and and more open-minded traditions, well, we sort of ceded our story to those folks who would talk about it most loudly who could quote chapter and verse in a way that we did not. We may have even presumed that those who could quote text after text so easily from various passages of the Bible were actually more biblical, which means that we lost touch with our story, a story that is so much more complex and and glorious and and beautiful. And we can only see that when we don't just proof text here and there, but that we stick to the whole story and become immersed in it. Uh, uh, A few days um, into the pandemic, I think it was just before the shutdown, I was friends with a a young woman on Facebook. I think we were only acquaintances from another community that I had served. She began uh, posting up on Facebook these uh, conspiracy theories. And I just got tired of it. (laughs) And and I just said about one of the posts, I said, this is nothing other than a fear-mongering conspiracy theory. 
And the woman replied uh, that I should just unfriend her if I didn't like it. And so I did. <laughs> and um, about eight weeks later, she reached out to me. She had been raised in a Calvary chapel and had just read an article about how evangelicals were particularly susceptible to conspiracy theories. Uh, uh, one of the reasons being that the way they interpret Scripture as sort of being a code just for them that they've got to decipher. And she explained to me that she'd been struggling with her family uh, because of how they quoted Scripture and, and that she was losing her faith because she was losing her ability uh, to believe in the infallibility of Scripture, what she thought was absolutely essential to being a Christian. And so I asked her if she had time for a phone call uh, the following Sunday. By this time, she was in Connecticut. And uh, I asked her, what Scripture was it that, that she thought uh, supported the infallibility of Scripture? And probably many of you know uh, one that, that would be lifted up, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof and upbuilding in righteousness. And you see there, I just quoted without looking. Easy to proof text, right? And, uh, and I explained to her I actually ask questions, but I don't want to tell the whole story. Um, I explained to her that, that the Greek word that is translated in 2 Timothy as inspired by God is a Greek word, theopneustos. Theo combines as God, and panustos is spirit or breath. And then I mentioned to her that this particular word, theo Panustos had never, ever in the history of all human writing been used before the author of 2 Timothy created it. That's the first instance, and there are lots of these in the Bible, and this is one of the reasons we interpret it wrong. <laughs> Did you know that? Only time. Uh, before, it's the, it's the first time in Scripture, that, uh, first time anywhere that theopneustos is, is a word. And, and so what I said next is that since this word, theopneustos, had never ever been used before it was written down in 2 Timothy, we could not be exactly sure of what the intended meaning of the word was when the author made it up this new word. And, and so I said, it, and so we can't really know what it means, but what we can do is we can look back into stories of Scripture and find examples, stories of where God breathes into things. And so I asked her, I said, what story do you think of when you think of God breathing into something? And she immediately came up with Genesis 2 where 
where God, you know, takes the mud and forms it into to a, uh, to a dom and breathes into it. And then Adam becomes a living being. And so I asked her, did Adam become infallible when God breathed into him? And I I just treasure the sound that, that I remember, the sudden burst of laughter because it was coming from this place of relief. And she said, of course not. And I said, well, then we don't have to interpret 2 Timothy as saying anything more than the word came to life. Never said it became perfect. It's not even implied. A few months later, the woman uh, sent me a lovely, lovely message thanking me for um, helping her into a new understanding of our story, one that she could continue to live by honestly and, and authentically, that she didn't have to sort of fake it around her family anymore. And I am convinced, friends, that if we dig into Scripture, rather than than reading it sort of on a surface level and and assuming we can know immediately what it means, but, but, you know, trusting scholarship, trusting uh, some of us who've done some work on this in our lives, um, I think we will discover that this is just such a life-giving story that we can and should reclaim in all of its fullness. Because when we do that, we won't feel conflicted at all about welcoming people of other faiths into our community and hearing in a Christian pulpit a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam share a beautiful prayer of peace that should inform the way that we live our lives of faith. Amen.